Kiara. You're listening to a podcast for the Salvation Army Glen Eden. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you hear today. If you are ever in Auckland, join us each Sunday at 9.30am or visit salvationarmy.org.nz for more information on the work we do in Aotearoa. We've been having a bit of an intense time, haven't we? Woo! Has anyone found um, this series uh, heavy or helpful so far? Yes? So, oh, people at the back. Look, those back rowers, eh? They pay attention, don't they? So I wonder this week, who has had the opportunity to hear the chatterbox? Who's heard the voices in their head telling them lies about who they are? Aileen, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And you might feel like this is an embarrassing thing to admit, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing because if you hear it, it means you recognize it. You recognize that there is a voice speaking to you that is not the voice of gosh. And actually hearing it, recognizing it is the first step to beating it, to crashing it. So congratulations if you're crazy and you hear voices in your head and you figured it out. It means you're on your way to finding the freedom that God has for you. So we've talked about this idea of never being enough. And we talked about beating that with the promise of God that he says, I am. I am. I have everything I need because of God. I am. And we talked about overcoming fear in our lives, the things that keep us awake at night, that we worry about, that are simply out of our control. And we talked about overpowering that with God's promise that God says he will that he will, he will love us, he will protect us, he will provide for us, he will be on our side, he will. Has anyone been able to crash the voice of um, not feeling good enough or of being afraid in their life this week? Has anyone had the opportunity to do that? Yeah, just me, wow, I'm, I'm gonna try not to listen to the chatterbox about that in my own head this morning. Okay, so this week, I'm just gonna move this over again. This week we're looking at how to crash shame and condemnation in our lives. And I actually had a few people come up to me last week and say to me, I don't know what you mean when you say condemnation. It was actually quite a few people. And I just want to say thank you to those people. You know who you are, because that was really helpful. This is like what sermons are meant to be about, about dialogue and feedback. So I wanted to hopefully explain to you what I mean by that word so that you don't get put off by the big word. It is a Christianese word, right? It's like a church word. So I want to explain it to you, and I hope this is going to make you feel a little bit better. So I'm going to need a couple of volunteers. You're not, oh, Tamara, yes. You're not going to have to do much. You're just going to have to help me by holding these papers. Can I have someone else? Kyra. Look at these. Look at these youth being awesome. Okay, so Tamara, can you stand here and hold that one? And Kyra, can you stand on that side and hold this one? Okay, so... No. Okay, so hold it up so everyone can see. Now, on this side, Tamara is holding up. Can everyone say, hi, Tamara? Hi, Tamara. Wow, they're not very loud, are they? That's all right. So on this side, it says shame 
and condemnation. And the reason it says both these words is because I'm talking about something that is one and the same. It's the same thing. Shame and condemnation. And it's different from these two words over here. Everyone say, hi, Kyra. So Kyra has two different words that mean the same thing, guilt and conviction, guilt and conviction. Now, guilt and conviction is about recognizing when you've done something wrong and you know that it's wrong, okay? You're guilty. It's just a yes or a no answer. Conviction means the same thing. You feel in your mind or in your heart that you've done something wrong, and you know it, okay? That's guilt and conviction. Now, shame and condemnation is different because shame and condemnation isn't just that I've done something wrong, but I'm a bad person because of it. Does that make sense? Guilt is recognizing when I do wrong. That's what conviction means. But shame and condemnation is when what I've done wrong makes me wrong as a person. So let me give you an example why these two people hold these beautiful cards, looking lovely. Who here went to school? Anyone? Yeah, oh, some of you were in school, wow. Okay, now who knows that when you have a good teacher or a bad teacher, it can totally change your experience of school? Oh, look, the youth are just <laughs> amening up the front. Okay, so I want you to imagine that you're in class. Guys, this is gonna be easy for you. You're in class, now this is set up quite well because this is kind of like a classroom with invisible desks. And um, imagine that I'm the teacher. And I gave you some homework to do last night. Yes, last night on a Saturday. That's the kind of teacher that I am. And now I'm asking you to come up to the front and pre present to me your homework and how you've done it. Now, Kyra didn't do her homework. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, Kyra didn't do her homework. So when she comes up the front, she has to admit her guilt. And she says, I didn't do my homework. She didn't do it. Now, at this point, at this point, here's what a good teacher would do. Something along the lines of this. Kyra, you didn't do your homework. That's all right, we'll have a talk about it after class. Maybe we can catch you up. Would that be, you'd be okay with that interaction? Yeah, good, okay. That would be guilt, yeah? Yeah, you made a mistake, but let's talk about it later. We can get you back on track. Now, Tamara also didn't do her homework. Mm, yes. But I want you to imagine, for example, what a bad teacher might do in this scenario. Tamara, you didn't do your homework. No, I did not. So you didn't finish the work that I gave you to do. Tamara, you never finish anything. Class, please point at Tamara with your fingers. Please laugh at Tamara. I'm not hearing any laughter. Bad Tamara, you are a bad student. Okay, but do you understand the difference between helping someone move through their mistakes and shaming them, making them feel bad for who they are? Do you understand? That's condemnation, this is conviction. Give these guys a hand, woo! Thank you, thank you. 
Okay, so do you feel like you're on board with that? Do you understand what those two things are? Okay, good. That was my very simple illustration. So those are the two things that we're looking at this morning, and you'll need to understand them to follow along. So I'm going to tell you two stories this morning, one from the Bible and one from my own life. And, you know, I was thought of a really great illustration uh, for this morning's message from um, Game of Thrones, and I thought, you know what, maybe I can't share that. So if you're in a Game of Thrones support group, you're one of the people who would have to come up here and say, hi, my name is Missy, yes, I watch Game of Thrones. You can ask me about the perfect illustration for this after the service, but I'm going to use one from the Bible instead, uh, and one from my own life to illustrate how damaging shame and condemnation can be in our lives. So we're going to get straight into it, and we're looking at the story of Peter, and it starts in John, but I'm going to jump around from John and Luke so I can tell you the whole story. So it might be a little hard to follow along, but I will tell you it anyway. So John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. And when the hour had come, we're now in Luke chapter 14, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. You know that in Jewish culture when you eat, you don't sit like this. You know that you lie down like that, eh? Yeah? Okay, good. Hopefully you can picture that in your minds. So they were lying down, reclining at the table. And Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So after taking the cup of wine uh, or grape juice, he gave thanks to God and said, take this and divide it among you, for I won't drink it again until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread as well and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is like my body. When you do this, remember me. My children, I will only be with you a little while longer. You will look for me. But where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. And then jumping down to verse 36, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but later you will. But Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you? I would lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So Peter is with Jesus and his friends. And every year, once a year, they celebrate a festival called Passover. And in this festival, the Jewish people remember how thousands of years before, God saved their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. And they have symbols that help them remember the sacrifice that God made to set them free. Just like at Thanksgiving, you might have a turkey. At Christmas, you might have a ham. Uh, for your birthday, you have a cake. And at Passover, they have bread and wine, and amongst other things. And they used to use these to help them reflect on the sacrifice God made to give them their freedom. 
But then Jesus starts to mix it up a little because he says, guys, something's going to happen really soon. That means that every time you have Passover from now on, you're not just going to remember the freedom that God gave your ancestors. You're going to remember the freedom that God gave to you. And you won't be able to follow me where I'm going. And Peter, you know, when we think of Peter, he's like the strong dude in the Bible. He's bold. He's courageous. He's willing to look silly in front of other people. And he says, Jesus, I would die for you. I would do anything for you. I will go with you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, Peter, you're going to deny that you know me. Three times before the next morning, before the rooster crows. Because remember, they didn't have phones, so they couldn't set their alarm when it was time to wake up. They had roosters, and uh, they crowed when it was morning time. So by the morning, you will deny me three times. And then in just a couple of hours' time, Jesus is arrested, and every single disciple Every follower of Jesus, including Peter, runs away. You see, Peter thought that Jesus was going to solve all his troubles. He was convinced that Jesus was going to help him with the things that he struggled with. But now Jesus is the one who's in trouble. And Peter is so confused. He has unmet expectation. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But he's feeling down about the fact that Jesus hasn't done what he thought Jesus should do. And he's afraid. The person he's been following has just been arrested. He's scared. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And now he's feeling ashamed. Because he just told Jesus he'd die for him. And at the first sign of trouble, Peter runs away. But Peter still loves Jesus. And so he decides to do something that none of the other disciples did. And here it is in Luke 22, verse 54. Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance. Followed at a distance. I wonder how many of us this morning are following Jesus at a distance. That because of unmet expectation, because of fear, because of shame in our lives, instead of following close behind Jesus where we belong, we follow our way back. Where we can't get too close. Where Jesus can't see how we've messed up. When Jesus can't see how afraid we really are. So instead of being close to Jesus, when we need him most, we follow at a distance. Stephen Furtick calls this in his book, Following at a Guilty Distance. We're ashamed. So we don't want to get too close to Jesus. You know, you can come to church and you can sing all the songs and you can say all the right things, but carry in you a heavy heart that is full of shame and regret and condemnation. And it will suffocate your spiritual life because instead of going to Jesus when you need him the most to help you in the area of your life when you're struggling, you follow at a distance. I wonder how many of us this morning are following Jesus <coughs> at a distance. 
following Jesus at a distance. You know, I've had times in my life where I was just like Peter, where I said to God with my whole heart, Jesus, man, I would die for you. I love you so much. And then the first sign of temptation and trouble, I did the thing that I said I would never, ever do. And at that moment, when I had the chance to admit my guilt and to say, I need to turn my life around, I need to go close again to Jesus, the chatterbox creeps and it brings with it shame and condemnation and it points the finger at you and at me and it says, you call yourself a Christian? Look at you. Look how you've messed up again. You're such a mistake. You're such a failure. You're such a letdown. Jesus must be so disappointed in you and how you turned out. Look at you. Shame on you. And so instead of going to Jesus, I listen to the voice of shame and it struggles and strangles my spiritual life and I start to follow Jesus at a distance. And if my life has taught me anything and if the story of Peter teaches us anything, it's this, that when we begin to follow Jesus at a distance, we only get ourselves into more trouble. So let's have a look at the trouble that Peter gets into in verse 55 to 60. So there was a fire going and in the courtyard and some people had sat down. And so Peter sat down with them. And a servant girl saw Peter seated in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else came and sat down at the fire. And he said to Peter, you are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About another hour later, another man came and said, this man must have been with Jesus. He's a Galilean. But Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Ah, 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 ah. That's my best rooster impression, by the way. Oh, thank you, thank you. <clears throat> the rooster crows. And it reminds Peter of the words of Jesus. Peter, you're going to deny that you know me three times. And Peter said, no way. It'll never happen. But now, here it is. In verse 62, Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. You will deny me three times before morning, before the rooster crows. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. (coughs) Did you know that there is an enemy named the chatterbox who wants to destroy you? It wants to convince you that the things that you have done wrong are actually who you are. It wants to tell you that your mistakes, when you've made a problem or an issue or given into temptation, that that is now all you are. And when you fall, it wants to kick you while you're down and say, there is no point getting up because you will never make it. You will never get it right. Stay down. God is ashamed of you. Stay down. Don't get up. 
Don't try again. There's a difference between guilt and conviction, recognizing we've done something wrong and changing it in our lives and being shamed and condemned, thinking that what I did must be who I am. If I messed up, I am a mess up. If I failed, then I am a failure. If I made a mistake, it's because I'm a mistake. That's what shame and condemnation will do in your life. And the voice of the chatterbox has another name. And the name is in Revelation 12, verse 10. Listen to these words. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power of the kingdom of God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night has been hurled down and they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice of Jesus and the word of their testimony. We have an accuser. You know, lots of us tend to think that the enemy's main strategy is temptation in our lives. If he can just get us to make a mistake. But the thing about temptation is that it's temporary. You can only be tempted so much before you have to go to sleep at night, right? Or before you have to come to church. You can't get up to too much mischief here, although I'm not trying to tempt any of you to give that a go. But what isn't temporary? Accusation. Accusation is permanent, and it will have a permanent effect on your life. That once you've done something wrong, oh, what a failure you are. Look how terrible you are as a Christian. I can't believe you even think you are one. You can't be forgiven. Look at your life. Jesus couldn't forgive someone who messes up as much as you. We have an accuser who wants to keep us down and keep us away from God. But there's good news. But wait, there's more. We have an accuser. We have a chatterbox, but we have something else. Listen to this in John 14, verse 26. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. My peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Do not be troubled. Do not be afraid. I am with you. We have an advocate, the Holy Spirit, and it will come and it will convict us in our life. What does that mean? It means when we mess up, it'll let us know. Yeah, I've made a mistake. I need to address that. I need to think about that in my life. But guess what? It's just a mistake. You can get up and do this again. You can try again tomorrow. You are still loved by God. You are still God's child. Nothing's ever going to change that. Have you ever watched a TV show or a movie about lawyers in a courtroom? Suits anyone? Hey, yeah. Okay, so what happens when someone is on trial and they take the stand and the accuser gets up, don't they? The accuser, the lawyer. And he speaks to the person on trial. And he tries to point out all their flaws. He tries to get them to break, to fail, to admit that they need to go away to prison when they won't bother anyone anymore. And then the lawyer, the defender, the advocate gets up, doesn't he? The lawyer on their side. And he stands up as the person has been accused and says, I object. This person is innocent. 
This person might have made a mistake, but they've been forgiven. They don't need to go to prison. They're a child of God. They're set free. The accuser is trying to bring us down, and the advocate is trying to set us free. Who this morning is grateful that we have a God who even when we say, God, I don't deserve your love, he responds in this way. Yeah, you don't deserve it. But guess what? I've made you worthy of it. No, you don't deserve it, but I died to make you worthy of my love. You have it. You have my love, and nothing can take it from you. Are you grateful that we have an advocate this morning, that we have a God whose love is unconditional? That's the God I'm grateful for this morning. Amen? So... (laughs) Do you remember a couple of weeks ago that I told you about how you should be careful not to send that text message um, when you're not in a good mood? Anyone remember that? Yeah. It's really interesting how you can preach something and then go and do the complete opposite of what you just told a room full of people. (laughs) So I want to tell you a story from my own life that's quite recent that I hope will help you understand the topic we're talking about today. So I've got to give you a little bit of the background to this story, okay? So settle in, get your popcorn out. Now, in my family, yeah, we have a family dynamic. Every family has family dynamics, don't they? A way in which you work together, you're wired, and you don't realize it until you come into contact with another family, and you're like, whoa, what's wrong with that family? And they're looking back and thinking the same thing about you, aren't they? So every family has a family dynamic. And you know, this morning, My mum is giving her testimony uh, at her church, and we had a chat about it earlier in the week, and we were having some sweet lols, you know, some laugh out loud moments, talking about some of the funny stuff we used to get up to. Because see, my house growing up was quite, for lack of a better word, a brutal house. Yeah. Um, We were quite honest in the way that we spoke to each other. Now, I would call it honesty. Jordan would call it being mean. But um, that's kind of the way that we communicated with each other. So I want to give you a couple of examples. Yelling was normal in my house, right? It was perfectly normal to yell at someone if you were having a conversation. That didn't make it an argument just because you were screaming. Come on, okay? And I remember... That something quite that happened quite a few times is if you were having an argument with someone in my house and the other person started to get upset, you know, they started to get a bit emotional, a little bit of crying, or you know, um, during the argument, you know, in some families, maybe like in Jordan's kind family, um, at that point you'd go, whoa, whoa, this person's getting upset, it's gone too far. You know, and you'd say, okay, okay, let's just, let's talk this out, right? Let's figure out what's going on. In my family, if someone started to cry, this is how you would respond. <laughs> you big wuss, I'm crying because we're in an argument. And then you'd carry on yelling at them. Yeah? Suck it up, come on, we're just arguing. Like, I don't need to see no tears in this place. Please, if you can't handle it, move on. 
but I'm about to win, so you need to stick around. Okay, so that's kind of how our family dynamic worked. But the other thing about the way that this worked in my family is that you got over it real quick. You weren't allowed to hold on to anything in my family, so we're going to yell at each other, we're going to slam the doors, and then in five minutes' time, we're going to come out of our room like nothing has happened. Yeah? We move on. It's not a big deal to yell insults at each other on a regular basis. I didn't understand when I talked to other families and people were holding grudges against people. Like, man, if you yelled about it, what is there left to discuss? Come on. It's been solved. But so this is, like, I'm just trying to help you understand the way my family works. It's my way of justifying my current actions. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I was talking to my sister on on Facebook the other day. And we got into a bit of an argument. (laughs) And um, never a good place to argue. And what happened was it was was escalating slowly, like message after message. But that was fine because we can handle that, right? We're very honest with each other. We know everything that we don't like about what each other is doing. But then my sister said something that just totally, (gasps) yeah, okay, just made me rage. She said, we were talking about, you know, some things that she was going to buy, and I suggested that she go to the family store or to an op shop, right, and get it, because she could get a good deal. And my sister doesn't like shopping at op shops, and I knew that. I knew it, and I said it anyway. So she replied to me, and she said, I don't need to go to an op shop. I'm not poor. And honestly, (laughs) I love op shops. And that just really just, whoa, she took it to the next level. Oh, no, she didn't. And so I replied. And it was not a holy or officer-like reply. And I knew, even as I was sending it, that I shouldn't send it. I knew. I was being convicted, right? I was being made to feel guilt about what I was about to do. But I was angry, so I did it anyway. And so I know that my sister owes quite a bit of money to the bank. So I sent her a message back, and I said to her, I won't say her name, (laughs) I said to my sister, you owe this much money, you're one of the poorest people I know. And I knew in that moment, ooh, that I'd taken it too far. It had crossed the line. And in that moment, as the message is sent, because you know on Facebook you can't delete it, like you can delete it from your screen, but it doesn't go from theirs. And I knew it was too far. And my sister got upset, and I had to apologize. And that was guilt. That was God convicting me, yeah? Whoa, Missy, too far. That's actually judging someone that you're not called to judge too far. And so I sent my sister a message and I apologized. But let me tell you what happens after you feel guilt and conviction, because the chatterbox starts to talk and you go from feeling guilt to feeling shame, from feeling convicted to feeling condemned. So let me tell you about the difference between that voice and my life. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, you apologized, but doesn't really mean anything, does it? You've done this before, overreacted. It's because you're not a good sister. Actually, you've never been a good sister. What have you ever done for them that's made a difference in their life? And how can you get up and preach to a group of people when you don't even know how to love your own sister well? 
you need to step down. You're in the wrong job. People who make mistakes like that don't deserve to do what you're doing. Do you really think that Jesus is going to be able to work with you through this? This is like the first time today, but it's not the first time you've done it. You're such a mistake. You're such a bad sister, a bad friend. Why can't you just stop failing all the time? Why can't you be better? You're never going to be anything but what you are now. Why do you even bother talking to your sisters? You're only going to screw up their lives. This is the voice of shame in our lives. And it kicks you while you're down and makes you feel like you shouldn't bother trying again. But the voice of conviction is very different. And it says this, hey, what was that about? What's going on? Let's have a discussion about this. Let's work through this together. Because we can do better, eh? We can do better than that. You're better than that. Can you see the difference? And often these voices sound really similar. And they sound similar because they're discussing the same thing. You made a mistake. You did do something or you didn't do something. But God wants to give you the grace to make a change in your life. And the enemy wants to keep you down so you never bother trying to change again. So here's how you recognize the difference between the two voices. And they all start with the letter P. So it's real easy, okay? The first one is the enemy, the chatterbox, always makes it personal. Everyone say personal. Good, okay. Personal. It's about who you are. Not I made a mistake, I need to fix it, but you are a mistake. Get it? Hear the difference? It's personal. The next thing is permanent. Everyone say permanent. Good. It's I will always be like this. Yeah? God wants to say to us, you made a mistake, let's do better next time. The chatterbox wants to say, you always make this mistake. You will always make this mistake in the future. It's permanent. And the last one is pervasive. Say pervasive. It's in everything. You always do this in every area of your life. Get it? Personal, permanent, pervasive. It can be summed up in this sentence. What's wrong with me? I always mess up everything. What's wrong with me? I always mess up everything. Personal, permanent, pervasive. If you hear that voice, you are hearing the voice of the chatterbox. So what is the voice of God? Well, we're going to finish on this this morning, this scripture, because what's really interesting about this story, Peter, remember Peter? Is that Jesus wanted him to listen to another voice. And before Peter had even denied Jesus, this is what Jesus said to him. Peter, the enemy has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I'm gonna ask the music team to come up. When you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that Peter was going to make a mistake. 
He knew that he was going to fail. And yet Jesus also knew that one day Peter would turn back. And Jesus had already prayed for Peter. He had already forgiven Peter for the mistakes he was going to make. And so often in our lives, we feel like if only, if only someone could do that for us, but somebody already has. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus, after that very trial, was hung on a cross and he was killed for you and I, that we might be free from sin, from greed, from hatred, from consumerism, from shame and condemnation, that we might experience the love of God. Because did you know that your failure is not final? That grace is the last word in your life. And Jesus wants to set you free and give you hope and a future. He is saying to you this morning, my child, my child, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers and sisters 